This is the Cascade Hiker Podcast. Find us over at CascadeHikerPodcast.com. I'm a country boy with the soft side. My heart wanders up north to the hillside. Now I've never made anyone quite as beautiful as you. I'm your host, Rudy Gets It. I'm here to inspire you to get out on the trail. You putting in two-mile hikes, five-mile hikes? Are you still on the couch? Come on, let's go on a backpacking trip. I'm going to introduce you to some folks that have done that and a whole lot more. All right, the next on the Cascade Hiker Podcast, what's your names and where are you from? I'm ultra pedestrian Ross, Ross Vaughn. I'm Kathy Obel and Branded, and we are currently living on Whidbey Island in Coopville, and that's in Washington State. Right on. Well, hey, I uh, had you on the podcast, uh, oh gosh, about four or five months ago, and you guys had kind of just started the uh, the up north loop. I think I talked to you guys were on the uh, Oregon Desert Trail at the time. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, just how that went. I mean, you guys had gone, I believe it was like somewhere around 700 miles or something at that time. Um, talk a little bit about what the up north loop is to those that, uh, that haven't haven't heard about it. All right. Well, the Up North Loop is a vision that we had for linking together parts of the Oregon Desert Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, the Pacific Northwest Trail, and the Idaho Centennial Trail to form a 2,600-plus mile loop through the inland northwest. So, yeah, when we last talked to you, we had done... Um, boy, I can't remember the exact mileage. We were, I believe, a bit more than halfway through the Oregon Desert Trail section of it. So really just having started, but um, deep into one of the hardest parts of the entire project. Oh, is that right? That that ended up being the hardest? Yeah, you know, the hardest parts were the Oregon Desert Trail and then the Idaho Centennial Trail. So, and the way we tried to approach this project, the ODT was the first part, and then the Idaho Centennial Trail was the last part, because there's just a limited weather window through during which to try to accomplish this loop. And uh, we were trying to get through the Oregon desert before things got dangerously hot and be able to sort of follow spring and summer north along the PCT and then cut across the PNT to Idaho and run south ahead of the impending winter. Yeah, and uh, and in the middle of all that, there's some uh, some storms and some uh, some fires and all kinds of stuff. What was kind of the uh, the big hiccup other than those uh, than than the Oregon Desert Trail? Yeah, we definitely had some fire reroutes when we were following the Pacific Crest Trail. Um, which actually in the end was was really kind of cool because we got to see some and travel on some trail that was less traveled on the Pacific Crest Trail, like near uh, White Pass. We followed a really cool trail with old growth trees and, you know, really raging wild uh, creeks and rivers. And the Forest Service had gone through and just cleared it just enough that uh, the PCT hikers could make it through, but it just wasn't a trail that had been traveled very commonly at all. And there were tons of huckleberries on that section. So it really ended up being pretty nice. Um, but when we got to the North Cascades Highway, rather than continuing north, which had been our plan, um, we needed to just start heading east because the the PCT was actually closed just a little bit north of the North Cascades Highway. 
So we followed um, the North Cascades Highway just on the shoulder of it all the way into Mazama and then into Winthrop. And we continued on a lot of road and highway rather than being able to hit much trail on the PNT because of those fires. Yeah, the PNT has a substantial chunk of uh, road walking in it anyway. And then because of fire reroutes, we ended up adding uh, quite a bit more asphalt and linking together some forest service roads and other dirt roads through um, Okanagan County and out through the Inlahican and areas like that. So we ended up doing a slightly different route, but because of that, we got to have these experiences that people normally wouldn't have on the PNT. Yeah, for sure. And I know, uh, sadly, that was going to be one of your guys' kind of favorite. Uh, you, you were really looking forward to that section because you guys had mentioned that uh, you used to live up in that area, right? Yeah, exactly. And we basically had to route around the entire Pasayan wilderness, which is uh, one of the wildest places in the lower 48 states. But we, I, we've spent a bunch of time in there. We've done a lot of running and hiking in there previously, so it wasn't as big a missed opportunity for us as for someone who'd never set foot in there, for instance. But it definitely is one of the gems of this route, and we were pretty disappointed to have to hike around it. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, before I get a little bit too far into our discussion here, I did want to bring up um, one of the listeners, Brian Todd, had a question uh, what aspect of your trip was harder than you expected? And, you know, because maybe you were already expecting the Oregon Desert Trail to be harder. And what was easier than expected? Hmm. What was harder than expected? Well, so, you know, so a couple of our resupplies actually ended up being harder oh. than expected. Um, there's some really, really remote areas in on the Idaho Centennial Trail where it's difficult to hit a resupply and uh, one of our resupply plans kind of fell through at the last minute and we ended up uh, on the phone from um, uh, where was that? Near Sandpoint. Yeah, near Sandpoint, just like frantically on the phone messaging people and texting people and finally found a friend who was, we were able to reroute our resupply packages uh, to our friend John Reese and he and his wife Carrie drove hours and hours to meet us down at the Wilderness Gateway campground uh, off the, uh, uh, what is it? What's the the Loxa River. Yeah, the Loxa River. And then then we got snowed on heading in there and got slowed down. So they actually had to leave before we even made it there to meet them. And <laughs> oh, man. so they left, they left our resupply package at a hunter's camp about a half mile up the road and left us a note. And fortunately, we saw that. We only missed them by about two hours. Um, but we were able to hike up and those, the hunters were amazingly friendly. I mean, they were super kind folks. They'd, you know, held this big bin of resupply stuff for us and they invited us into their camp and showed us a spot where we could set up our tent and fed us and, you know, everything. So they really treated us like family, which was pretty surprising. You know, I mean, maybe like the weird cousin, but still like family, <laughs> it was a pretty amazing experience. <laughs> That's good. What about something that was easier than you expected possibly? Well, I think in general, following the Pacific Crest Trail was a bit easier than I had thought ahead of time. You can really just hop on the Pacific Crest Trail and you're on single track and you can follow trail markers or an app on your phone 
and really get from point A to point B pretty easily with having all the data you need along the way, where you're going to get your next water, where the big climbs are, where the descents are, where camping areas are. Um, it's not that it's not difficult to hike on the PCT. There's a lot of climbing and you're up at elevation and we hit it right during the really hot, humid part of the summer. So all of that was challenging, but it was definitely the easiest part to follow and the easiest um, place to kind of hit resupplies or um, get into a, a small town and, and get some fresh food and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's kind of set up there. Uh, what about the... It really uh, is. Did this include the entirety of the Idaho Centennial Trail? I can't remember. No, it didn't include the entirety of any of the trails involved. Um, but it did, it was going to, the plan was for it to include uh, the majority of the Idaho Centennial Trail, but we would be connecting to it a little south of the northern terminus, and we uh, left it a little north of the southern terminus. So we missed the tail tail ends of the Idaho Centennial Trail, even in our planned route. And then because of weather conditions and some resupply problems, we ended up having to route around a good sized chunk near the southern or the middle of it. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. You know, looking at the map, um, it just looks like it, it really does touch some beautiful area in there. And um, I would assume that, uh, well, I guess I, I, the only reason I say this is because the PCT, the ODT and the PNT seem to have a lot of social media presence or, um, you know, maybe just media in general about it, but I just don't really hear about the Idaho, Idaho Centennial very often. Did, did you find a lot of people out there? Uh, no, we didn't. <laughs> we, and yeah, you don't hear a lot about the Idaho Centennial trail. Um, uh, there, there just isn't a lot of buzz going about it, but I mean, there's, there's going to be now because it's, Idaho is just fabulous. I mean, it's, it's insane. Ab Idaho is uh, amazing to us that it's not widely known as a world-class hiking destination. There is so much adventure to be had there and so much amazing ground to touch that uh, I, I just can't believe it's, it's not one of the more talked about states as a long distance backpacking destination. But I, we only even know of, I think, two other hikers that were on, or maybe three that were even on the Idaho Centennial Trail this year. And we didn't see another backpacker or hiker uh, at all. We saw a couple of trail runners and we saw lots of hunters, but, but that was it. Yeah. yeah, we had been in touch with Clay Jacobson, who works with the Idaho Trails Association and really is the, the, the main guy for the Idaho Centennial Trail. He's the contact person and manages the website. And we, he had been following our trip through Facebook and Instagram and could see that we were nearing the area in Idaho where he lives. And so he contacted us and said, hey, you're going to be hiking right near my house. I'd love to meet up with you guys. And so sometime in the, the middle of the night, we were hiking along an abandoned railroad tracks. We saw <laughs> his headlights from his truck down, you know, this old road down below. And we called down to him, Clay. And he said, yeah, <laughs> like, okay, cool. This is it. And he, he took us up to his really cool cabin out uh, in some some remote area we drove you know maybe eight to ten miles to get to his place and he had 
pizza for us. And it was just super nice. We all went out to breakfast the next morning and then he returned us to that random spot railroad tracks again for us to, to continue <laughs> the next day. So we were able to talk with him quite a bit about the plans for the Idaho Centennial Trail and the work that he's doing now. They've got some great volunteer opportunities where um, you pay a, a pretty minimal fee and they feed you for a week's time and you, you work, you know, on trail maintenance out along the trail. But yeah, a lot of it was following BLM two tracks, um, bushwhacking, finding our way, you know, just finding our, our own way. There's not really a lot of trail that you follow. There's some gorgeous trail up in the northern part of Idaho along the Upper Priest Lake area um, with some really ancient cedar forests. And we heard um, elk, you know, elk bugling in that, in that remote region. And that was super special. And we did follow some trails through the Selkirk. Um, but yeah, from that point on, there wasn't a lot of following trail. We saw beautiful country and we were on Forest Service Road and, um, and that kind of thing, but not necessarily connecting single track like you do along the PCT. Six Moon Designs uh, picked up a lunar solo tent. Really excited about this. Uh, I want you guys to go over to sixmoondesigns.com. That's uh, all one word, of course, Six Moon Designs. So there's an S on the end there, .com. Um, I picked up the Lunar Solo, 200 bucks. It's only 26 ounces uh, listed on their on their website there. Uh, I'm excited about this. I, I fit no problem in this thing. I've always been kind of weary of uh, solo-type tents because um, I'm a big hiker. I'm, I'm 6'4", very wide, and there's plenty of room. I could easily squeeze one of my kids in there with me, and, and the vestibule is huge, too. If, uh, you know, if you hike with a dog and you've got a pad for the dog, whatever, it could easily sleep under this uh, vestibule with your pack and everything out there, um, boots or whatever you got going on. Um, anyway, yeah, so don't worry about that. It's also, uh, I've always been a little weary of uh, single wall tents, but this has, uh, you know, sort of the mesh, the, the, the mosquito netting, uh, about six inches, and, and then six inches of a bathtub floor as well with a, with a bottom. So it's sort of like a tarp, but um, it, it sets up as one tent. Anyway, go over there. There's plenty of videos and stuff on the website, sixmoondesigns.com. So you mentioned you ran into some hunters and you hear some elk and stuff. Um, was there a point where you guys were like, oh, man, we better get some orange on or anything, you know, get get your safety vest on or something? <laughs> oh yeah, Nor Idaho is all about hunting, <laughs> and and we hit it uh, right during the the throes of the hunting season, and it made it actually a really special, unique part of the hike in Idaho. We met hunters along the way that had a a moose in the back of their truck, and we had great interactions with them. We were along the St. Joe River at that time, both on on the shoulder of the road and then finally hitting some really gorgeous single track that they passed us about three different times, I think, before they finally stopped. And, you know, they, they were just in the midst of their hunt and, and had to, to drive the road a few times back and forth. And, you know, it was pouring rain and we had our, our ultralight umbrellas out and they, they just were very intrigued by what, what <laughs> we were in the middle of. So that was a really cool interaction. They gave us snacks. They pulled out this cooler and said, hey, anything in here you want, please, please take. But, yes, we definitely... Um, I got an bright orange bandana that I started either wearing on my head or on my pack. Ross um, found some orange ribbon here and there throughout the forest that he had strung all over the back of his pack. And, 
and we were definitely um, greeted in a not so friendly way by a packer on the trail too that gave us a pretty we already had our orange but he for some reason thought he, he would kind of give us a talking to about how prepared we needed to be it was just a couple of days before rifle season was about to begin and so he he wanted us to be sure we knew what we were getting getting into well that's good yeah and um I, you know i really like the way that you brought that up uh you sounded um almost like uh you were you felt very comfortable out there with the hunting and the hunters and um i i just i feel like sometimes there's there's some dialogue out there some conversations where it's uh sort of a us versus them no matter which side you're talking about um whether it's hikers talking about hunters or hunters talking about hikers um so i i just i just want to say i really like how you brought that up yeah yeah there there can be that divide and and we really don't think there needs to be um and it, you know it's it's funny because like Kathy talked about the hunters that we saw that had a moose they'd got in the back of their truck. I mean, you know, we're vegetarians. We love seeing moose. We would rather see a moose in its natural surroundings, but uh, we were guests in this land. You know, we were visitors and these were people that live there that are living their lives. And uh, I personally, if you eat meat, I don't have a problem with someone going out and getting their meat instead of buying it on a piece of styrofoam. To me, that makes a lot of sense. And if you can put your own, you know, personal things aside, sometimes it actually creates a really unique opportunity to get an up close look at a moose, even if it's in pieces in the back of somebody's truck, that aspect might be a little bit upsetting or uncomfortable, but just being able to look at this amazing animal up close like that, that's something you could never do in a completely wild situation. And over and over again, by being, as friendly and respectful as we could be with these hunters, they were friendly and respectful back to us. And we were able to talk to them about long distance hiking. And they were able to tell us about some of the amazing things that they do in order to do what they're doing out in the woods. And uh, we just went in with a, trying to be humble and open-minded about it and to learn from the people that actually inhabit this amazing place we were walking through. Yeah, that's, that's good words. Um, well, you know, we talked a lot about the different people that you saw there in Idaho. What about uh, some of the folks that you've passed on some of the other trails? Did you happen to see anybody you know, or were there any encounters where you're just like, wow, I can't forget that person? In Oregon, we had some great experiences meeting ranchers, uh, cowboys, buckaroos, um, which are different from each other the cowboys and buckaroos and so that experience was really great too there was one time we were taking our break um in sagebrush country and there was a blm uh two track that ran through the sage that we were taking our break in we had we had our our gatewood capes laid out and you know we were we were pretty yard sailed there and this truck went by with a horse trailer and their windows were down it was hot they had the flat brimmed hats on that are typical of the buckaroos as a, you know, working, working cowboys out on the ranch land. And it was, uh, what, what was going on with the, was it branding season? Some, something was going on where they were doing a lot of cattle drives. There, there was a lot of work happening on the, on the ranch lands. And these guys just, took a double take when they slowly were going by us you know yeah. they, you could see the brakes go on on the pickup truck yeah dust was you know 
coming out the the back. You could almost hear the needle drag after they saw us. Like, you know? <laughs> and the, it turned out to be what seemed to be three brothers in their mid twenties, and the oldest got out and you know walked towards us. And really, they were just wanting to make sure we were okay. They never heard. Us you know, anyone hiking through that area and that there was actually kind of an established route that passed right through there. Um, but their family had given permission for uh, the Oregon Desert Trail hikers to stop and get water at the windmill on their property. And these guys were so proud of the water. They said it was the coldest water in the area. So they did know that people stopped to get water there. And when we told them we, we had just, you know, they asked if we needed water. We said we had just refilled at this great windmill. And so we, we kind of connected on that, that level. And that was, that was really pretty fun. But yeah, it was cool because you could see when they first talked to us, they were, they were like, you guys, okay. You know, and you could see the concern and they were looking at us like, okay, we got a couple of tenderfoots that have wandered onto our property <laughs> here or something. They are probably going to need a ride out. But the more we talked to them as they, you know, they kind of looked us, I could see them just looking us up and down. I think I didn't even have my shoes on when they came up to us because we were just taking a break and I was letting my feet get some air, you know, and they were checking us out head to toe. But as we told them what we were doing and what we'd done so far and about our different experiences, you could see like the, their brains engaging and just this light turning on in their eyes. And they, by the end of that, they were into it and we gave them all ultra pedestrian stickers you know, I was like, you guys just want one or do you each want one? And they're like, we each want one. <laughs> so they, everybody went home with ultra pedestrian stickers. And you could see, like, I, I would not be surprised if those three, you know, a couple of years down the road, like load up their horses and go on some big epic, you know, cross country uh, trip, because you could just see that the idea of what we were doing was kind of magical to them. And it, it really lit their brains up. Yeah, I like that. And um, I, I the whole time you're talking about about these different uh, folks that you've been running into, I just can't help but think, uh, you know, how sad. Well, to me, I guess uh, now now I'm starting to judge. But uh, you know, you think about uh, city life, and you think about how you know you, you take I five up and down, and um, you just never see this kind of thing. And how cool for you guys to be able to go out and and you know just see all this stuff in action, you know. Oh, totally. Yeah. One of our very favorite things about through hiking that we've realized over the years is traveling in and out of towns you've never been to on foot. You have a completely different experience and, and perception and an understanding of a town when you move in and out of it on foot rather than just driving through it, uh, especially smaller towns. You know, you can drive through them in a couple of seconds, but walking through takes more time people wave at you, people give you dirty looks, whatever it is, but you have an interaction and you get a feel for the community. And sometimes you get to talk to people. And once they realize that you're not homeless, they take an interest in what you're doing. And it's, it's just an amazing to connect with all these little small town folks across all these different states that we got to walk through. Yeah, we were on, on the Oregon desert trail. We had to uh, hike through, um, the Hart Mountain Antelope Refuge, and that's just a beautiful place, and we really enjoyed some hot springs there, and um, because of the the huge lake, the mosquitoes were just terrible in there, and once we got off of walking along the shore of the lake, along two-track, we had to walk a little bit of pavement to get into this little community of plush, and 
again, we were just being eaten alive by mosquitoes. It was super hot. And we walked into this town. We knew that there was free camping at the, the little city park. So that was our plan was to camp there. But we wanted to stop at this store. I believe we had one or two boxes there. I think Ross had a replacement pack that was going to be there. But we walked into that place. There's a banner that said, Clemency for the Hammonds. Uh, everyone in there was in a cowboy hat. I mean, full on head to toe cowboy hat, Western style shirt. Chaps, birds. Chap, everything. <laughs> and oh, I know what it was. It was hay, the hay season is what it, what was going on. Oh, they were haying, yeah. So everyone was haying and they were kind of taking a break. This store also had a little cafe and everybody was playing cards. Um, there's no Wi-Fi there and it was pretty, you know, pretty down to earth and old fashioned. And everyone was just playing. They were all playing card games with each other. But when we walked through that door, you could have heard a pin drop. Everybody stopped <laughs> and stared at us and probably smelled us and who knows what else. But it was, you know, and and it was similar when walking into that that hunting camp when we came down out of the mountains, all bedraggled and super cold and had hungry, had been, hungry, been sleeping in the snow for a, a couple nights. And it's, it's intimidating, but it's really an awesome experience to just kind of be humble and expose yourself to that community and, and be real and honest and friendly. And, you know, that's what we did. We just smiled at each and every one of those cowboys that, <laughs> that just, you know, stared at us with dropped jaws. And, <laughs> and before you knew it, you know, we were getting cold drinks and, and the waitress was really friendly to us and it, it was all good, but it's definitely humbling to walk through these rural areas um, that don't know what through hikers are quite yet and to be the ambassadors for that and, you know, to really be friendly no matter what's kind of coming, coming our way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the way you describe it, it kind of, kind of reminds me of uh, uh, vacationers uh, to a different country or something when here it is. I mean, you, you just like, six hours, eight hours drive from, from, you know, where you, where you currently live, where I live in, in Marysville, you know, you're not that far away. And, and here it is just this completely uh, different area. And, and that's really, that's really neat. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's really, it's really neat to, to see how people live and just to walk into these towns and even the bigger towns, like walking into Bend down in Oregon and, um, into the outskirts of Boise when we were in Idaho, just to walk into the, the bigger cities is really pretty, pretty interesting too. Yeah. And um, can you talk about some of those smaller towns that you saw? Um, maybe not necessarily uh, rehashing some of the Oregon desert trail towns that you just mentioned, but you know, maybe on the PNT or the Idaho Centennial, were, were there any just really unique towns that you just, you almost kind of want to go back to because it was just such a cool feeling? Yeah, definitely. Well, um, Wallace, Idaho, and really stands out as as a very cool spot. It it was really historic with old uh, brick buildings and and just like a step back in time. And there's some, I think it's the Hiawatha Trail. There's um, mm -hmm. and a, the Trail of the Coeur d'Alene. Yeah, and the Trail of the Coeur d'Alene formed this nice loop. That's definitely a place we'd like to return to and just. It was pouring rain the whole time we were there, so we kind of stayed holed up in a motel room, but we'd like to walk around Wallace quite a bit more. That's, there's also some history of a forest fire that swept through there, I think, in 1910, and um, the Pulaski, a real common trail tool, fire tool, 
um, was named after one of the rangers, Pulaski, who ended up being able to save a crew of firefighters by hiding them out in a mine. Um, all across northern Washington are some really cool towns, like uh, all on the PNT, Medellin Falls, Northport, Orient, just little small towns um, that we had never been to when we spent our years in the Okanagan area. Um, we were able to stay at a historic uh, hotel in Medellin Falls. And yeah, just the entire up north loop is really, there's a lot of history uh, that you can learn about as, as you hike it and, and hike, you know, hike into these communities and kind of get a feel for what their history is, why, why they exist. Uh, and then in, in Idaho, after we hit Wilderness Gateway, at that point, we were supposed to continue south, pretty much due south into the uh, Selway Bitterroot and then the Frank's Tourist River of No Return wildernesses. And um, at that point, we had trouble getting our resupply. We did, we did get it, but we weren't able to get some other gear that we were needing for the impending winter conditions. And Kathy was having a little bit of uh, trouble getting some of her diabetic supplies. And so unfortunately that, I mean, the Soway Bitterroot and the Frank Church River of No Return together formed the largest contiguous block of wilderness in the lower 48. And that was actually one of the big things that we were looking forward to getting into. And unfortunately due to all these circumstances uh, and how late we were in the year, we made the disappointingly responsible decision <laughs> of not heading into that because there's just, there's very few plan B's out there. There's very few ways to get out in an emergency to get help, anything like that. And so, yeah, we made what was probably a prudent decision, but one that I'm, I'm still kind of unhappy with at this point, but it's what we needed to do. And because of that, we ended up just improvising a route linking together roads and highway shoulders and about 50 miles of abandoned railroad track. So we were just completely off the ICT in a place where people just don't walk. And um, so we hit all these fun and interesting little Idaho towns like uh, Kuski, which is where those hunters that were so kind to us were from. So they had actually like even hauled some of our extra gear into Kuski for us, like our bear, bear containers that we didn't need anymore. And so we picked them up back there and shipped them home. Then uh, Grangeville and uh, McCall, just all, all these little Idaho towns that you would have really no reason to go to, you know, unless you knew somebody there or were working or something, but they're really cool little towns in beautiful places. And pro one of the most extraordinary was that we ended up at uh, Bergdorf Hot Springs. And Bergdorf Hot Springs is, um, there's a 100-mile race that's run from there that was started a few years ago, the I'm Tough race that we'd heard of. And we didn't even realize until we got there that that was the spot. Mm. Um, so we get to this hot springs and we got a little cabin for the night. And it, something was going on where they weren't actually taking reservations or letting other people be there. So there's a set of hot springs where after they closed for the night, we were the only people there, like a swimming pool size hot spring that wow. we got to just float around in all night long. It was very, it was really amazing. Yeah. That was definitely one of our most special stops along the way. And yeah, when we were in, in Kuski, 
the, the hunters that we had met at the big camp that were holding our resupply box had told us that if we made it into Kuski, oh, yeah. one of the hunters, the one who had gotten a, a bull elk um, and had been hiking it out, you know, over several day period, he said, if you make it into Kuski, my mom owns the Kuski Cafe and I will buy you breakfast. And so, <laughs> sure enough, we got into Kuski, we went into the cafe, and his mom, you know, knew to expect us, and it was it was pretty cool. She came and introduced herself, and we got a free breakfast there, and <laughs> yeah, that was that was great. That was the town of Kuski is on uh, reservation land, and and it was just really just a neat experience being there. Wow. Yeah. That's a whole nother aspect to it too, that I didn't think about was reservations. And, um, when you brought up, uh, the town of Wallace, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've, I've been wanting to go to that area. Cause I did, I've read the book, big burn, the big burn. And, um, you know, that's where they describe a lot of that with the Pulaski and the, the fire from 1910 and, uh, how neat oh, to be yeah. able to experience that, uh, that, that, that area and, and read the, re, instead of reading the book, read the, the placards and stuff and, and see where it actually was. So that, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was great. I can't talk enough about Waymark Gear Company. Seriously, uh, my daughters still have their packs. We gave away a pack on the show, and I recently met Mark down at PCT Days over the summer. And I just want to say on their website, really easy to find, waymarkgearco.com. Check out their two types of packs. You've got the through, the 38 to 42 liter packs, and then the light. Uh, 50 liter packs. So uh, the throughs are $210 where they start. And then the 50-liter uh, packs, uh, the kind of the Cadillac of the frameless packs, they start at $260. So go over, check it out. There's all kinds of colors to pick from. Uh, this is just a quick little ad here to uh, you know support the show. At least go over there and follow him on Instagram, uh, Waymark Gear Company. And tell him the Cascade Hiker Podcast sent you. Uh, one thing I wanted to dive in was uh, was water. Um, I, I, I understand that the Oregon Desert Trail kind of has its own uh, water issues, but what about like the Idaho Centennial, the PNT? Was there was there any stretches where water was hard to find, or how was that? Um, yeah, on the PNT, no, everything was good in there um, for us anyway. I mean, we've you know we've done a lot of hiking in the Southwest on the Arizona Trail and Grand Enchantment Trail, so we're kind of, we're used to long water hauls and sketchy water sources. So um, we may not be as finicky as some people are. So for us, 15 miles isn't that isn't that bad in between reliable water sources. Um, but there were a couple places like along the state line ridge way up high uh, uh, in Idaho where there was no water. And um, we I was looking at the topo map trying to figure out where we could where we could get some to see if I could bushwhack down to where I thought there might be little ponds or creeks. And, um, we, again, it was hunting season. So we had hunters that had been passing us the whole time we were walking and some of them had seen us two or three times. And I stopped into one of their camps just to get some water beta and ask them if they'd seen, you know, if some of the creeks that I could see on the topo map were running or if they figured I could get down to a particular pond. And they ended up just offering to fill our water bottles for us because they had huge five-gallon containers of water. And um, so that, that was kind of how water played out. But there's definitely a couple of pretty long stretches, specifically along the state line ridge, which is this high ridge that runs you know, right along the state line between Idaho and Montana, where you definitely have to stay on top of your water and do some big water hauls in order to make it to the next source. Gotcha. 
And what about as far as direction, um, or or maybe possibly, uh, I guess it's a it's a it's a loop. So the flip flop concept. I don't know if that works, but um, if you guys were to go back and do this again next year, um, having been able to complete it and and get around some sort of a loop here, uh, wh- how how would you suggest it to other people? Uh, yeah, you know we've <laughs> we've talked about this a lot. We have, yeah. Um, <laughs> right now, my thought is that the best chances for success uh, would be to do it. Yeah, to do it differently. We started um, outside Boise, basically in Hammond, Idaho, and we headed clockwise. So we went west across the Oregon Desert first. That part makes sense, but I think we would start either start in Bend or maybe even a little bit east of Bend and head east, go counterclockwise, um, and start, you know, in May, as early in May as you can reasonably, and do the Oregon Desert section first like we did, but then do the Idaho Centennial Trail section second and get that done, um, you know, maybe mid-summer, and then be kind of moving across the PNT throughout summer and into early fall, and run ahead of winter south on the PCT. I think that is the best chance for success and the, uh, would give you the most ability to stay on the purest version of the up north loop line. Now, are you speaking mainly because of fire or or, or weather, or or also would the water be better that way? Um, I the water. I don't know that the water would be really different. I mean, we'd be doing the ODT in about the same time, so it would be the same. And on the ICT, the water is either abundant or there isn't water. There's not a lot of in-between. So the parts where there's abundant water, it would still be abundant. And the areas where it's limited, it would still be limited. So you'd just be having to deal with that and plan accordingly. But um, basically, it would get you through the, the two cruxes, the most difficult, most challenging, and slowest moving sections you would get done first. And that way, you'd be able to just move quickly across the PNT and down the PCT. So that's my thoughts anyway. I mean, we're excited about having other people take on this route and seeing how they approach it and seeing what they can do. And it'll be fascinating, I think, five or 10 years down the road to see the different approaches that people have taken and what's worked and what hasn't. Well, that was going to be one of my questions. And uh, since since you kind of threw this out there uh into the internet i know i had it on my episode and stuff have you guys been contacted by anybody that's curious about doing this possibly next year uh boy nobody has contacted us yet specifically you know with a a goal or aspiration of doing it although we did meet a couple people on the trail when we were doing it um a couple of people on the pct that knew exactly what we were talking about and were like oh i'd seen that i was hoping to do that so um you know, we weren't the only people to have the idea. We were just the ones who prioritized it and got out, got out and made a go on it and were able to send at least a version of the line. So um, I know that there's other people that are thinking about it. And especially with word getting out, the, it's going to light up some people's mental circuitry and capture their imagination. Yeah, I think someone will really want to try to hike the loop sticking to, you know, the kind of purest route that Ross has mentioned and following the ICT more directly and, you know, really, you know, possibly being able to get through the PNT and the PCT before, you know, fires really take them off course. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'd love to see that. 
No, it would be cool. And and the only reason why I would say they might want to contact you guys is because, well, you've done it, you know, and um, who better to talk to, right? Yeah. Yeah, we can definitely give a lot of a lot of help and uh, help prevent uh, reinventing the wheel. We can give, give a lot of information. We'd be more than happy to. We, we love that idea. Yeah. But also it's, you know, there, part of what we hope to see for this route is for people to not feel an obligation to stick to a specific form of it. There's so many possibilities to really customize this and create your own alternates and create specific, uh, you know, points of interest that you want to experience or see that we would really like for this project to stand as one where people can use their creativity and create their own version of it. And that's, that's one of the things I'm really looking forward to seeing is where other people will look at maps and look at the geographic features and decide what they want to experience and to, to see what lines that they take. Yeah, I think we hit about five hot springs, but there's a possibility of probably hitting a dozen hot springs. Um, you know, for example, is one focus that someone could take on would be, yeah, I want to hike this loop and I want to, you know, be sure and go to every hot spring that's, that's possible along it by, you know, either hitchhiking a little bit off the trail or just hiking off the main route to get to it. But there were, you know, a lot more possibilities for hot springs. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I can't uh, can't even imagine how much fun this was for you guys, and and probably a little grueling at times too. I mean, you know, nobody wants to uh, have to walk on the roads as much as you did and everything, but uh, but man, you guys uh, you guys completed the the loop, so that's uh, congratulations to you guys. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, we figure we probably did about two hundred and fifty miles of actual asphalt walking. Um, which is a lot, but you know, even, even there were some scary sections. I got some GoPro footage of like big logging trucks and stuff blasting past us, which are pretty crazy seeming. But, um, even then, if I ask myself, where would I rather be? Would I rather be like risking my life hopping over guardrails to get out of the way of logging trucks? Or would I rather be sitting in a cubicle? I think the answer is pretty obvious. Give me the logging trucks. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. Um, well, you know, I have a lost episode that I, I, I apologize, hadn't gotten out yet, but I will be releasing that. Um, and, and so I wanted to bring that up right now, um, kind of as, as a question. So, uh, you have the, the book 98 days of wind and, uh, and we, we did an episode with it and I, I'm actually going to get this one out right before that, but, uh, but can you kind of plug the book a little bit? Yeah. 98 days of wind is the account documenting our attempt to be the first people to yo-yo the Grand Enchantment Trail, which is a uh, route designed by Blister Free that runs roughly east and west between Phoenix and Albuquerque. Yeah, Phoenix, Arizona and Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so the book is a collection of some brief narratives Uh, describing our experiences and a collection of all of our trail dispatches that we posted to social media throughout the adventure. So it's, it's really unique in that it's, it's almost like a flip book in the sense that it's a compilation of all of these uh, instances in time taken from the very moment that they occurred from, you know, the very moment that they were happening to us on the trail and that we were experiencing them uh, set, you know, lined out in order so that you can have our firsthand experience of it rather than a filtered 
and processed recollection of what it was like. It's just those trail dispatches captured in the moment. Yeah, I thought it was a really cool uh, book. I, I really like the way you guys laid it out. And um, I guess my question on that then would be, um, were there enough instances on this to turn this into some sort of a book as well? Yeah, and we definitely are doing that. We are going to write a, a book about the Up North Loop. It'll be a different format. Um, you know, that uh, I really liked how that came out for 98 Days of Wind, it, but it's not necessarily going to be our go-to format for every book. And the, the book about the Up North Loop is going to be a more straight combination narrative, uh, trail journal, travel journal, and um, route description as well. Yeah, I really like to keep a journal while I'm on these long through hikes. So I, I've filled out two notebooks in completion <laughs> with the <laughs> journal entries so that we have a lot of information to, to go back on. And we can use our social media posts um, to, to help us tell our story. But um, it will be, like Ross was saying, in a different format this time and um, maybe not self-published this time as well. We might be able to actually have and publishing help. Oh, absolutely. What, uh, what about, um, what about next? Is there a next on mind or, uh, without maybe spilling too much? I know this one, you guys kind of, uh, seems like, <laughs> seems like you just kind of blasted out right when you're leaving almost, or, uh, that's at least the way I caught it. But, uh, uh is there something yeah. on the precipice here? We're definitely still scheming on what the next big thing will be. One thing we know we want to do for sure is get back, uh, to the Frank Church Selway Bitterroot Wilderness, and there's a loop that we can hike that will um, include the alternate routes at the, on the ICT, some some bits that we already hit, but we see about a 600-mile loop that we can do in there. And I don't know, we've, we've tossed around the idea of rehiking the whole thing again. A lot of it just has to do with how some other things in our in our life play out as well. So... Um, yeah, so that, I mean, that's our big, our only kind of biggish project we have planned for 2019 is a 600 mile loop through the Frank Church River of No Return, Soe Bitterroot Wilderness. Um, and there were a bunch of small projects. Um, so we've just got uh, a ton of things that we want to do, and it's a matter of having enough days on the planet to do them. So for 2019, not a, we're not planning a 2600 mile project. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Well, it's uh, ultrapedestrian.com. And then what What are your guys' uh, uh, social media handles? Uh, for Instagram, it's at ultrapedestrian. And um, if you if you just Google ultrapedestrian, you'll find all of those. We've got a team ultrapedestrian page and ultrapedestrian.com page on Facebook. Both of those have links to our personal profiles where you can follow us as well. And then... Um, on YouTube, it's uh, youtube.com slash ultrapedestrian channel. And we have tons. We have an amazing amount of uh, GoPro footage that we filmed. We were originally doing vlogs from the trail, but we just had so many technical issues and limited um, connections to the grid and resupply that we were only able to do a few of those from the trail. So we've got a whole backlog of those that we're going to be releasing as well as a larger video project about the entire loop. Um, and then 
there, I've got a video project with my friend Joel Beleza about the uh, Drakensberg Grand Traverse that I did a couple of years ago or last year in South Africa in Lesotho. That's going to be released very soon here, the very beginning of uh, 2019. Yeah, well, I would say to all the listeners, if uh, if 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 you're into hiking at all, they should definitely be following you guys because you guys are a lot of fun to. Uh, to read and, and, and see your pictures and things. And I, you know, I think that's one of the things that, uh, there's, there's, there's a few people out there that I really like to follow, uh, for the pictures alone, but you guys, uh, I just, I just love the way you guys talk and, and put it out there to people. So. Awesome. Thanks Rudy. Yeah. yeah we thank you very be, much. Try to be that way. We try to be honest and just share what, what's happening. That's good. Well, Hey guys, thanks so much for coming on the Cascade Hiker podcast. Thank you. Hey, Merry Christmas. Yep. Yeah, thanks for having us. Happy holidays to you and yours. Yes. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. All right. That's the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget to join the Patreon page. Find me at patreon.com slash Cascade Hiker Podcast. Also, hit me up uh, with an email, Rudy at CascadeHikerPodcast.com. Find me on Facebook. My Facebook page is Cascade Hiker Podcast. Twitter, find me at in underscore Cascade Hiking. And I'm Cascade Hiker Podcast on Instagram. Thanks, Whiskey Fever, for letting me use this track here, Tall Grass, off their album, Gonna Wake Up This Whole Town. Go find them at ReverbNation.com slash Whiskey Fever. Hey, see you next week. You were sweet like honey on a heartbeat. You were fine like wine in the sunshine. I could feel you coming on strong. Could never be wrong. Could never be wrong. See you're laying down in the tall grass. Playing mandolin in a white dress I come running when I hear that song It could never be wrong, it could never be wrong Where you wanna run, maybe I'll run too I would leave this world for a beautiful girl If I could just